Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Friday, November 20th, and this is your FT News Briefing. The World Health Organization tells doctors to stop prescribing an important treatment used to fight coronavirus. A rare tug of war is going on between the U.S. Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve, and wildfires are having an unusual effect on a favorite adult beverage. Plus, Venezuela has depended on its oil to keep its economy afloat for decades. But now, experts are saying it could become the world's biggest stranded asset. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. For a while, remdesivir was the go-to treatment when it came to handling coronavirus. Even President Donald Trump took it when he had the virus back in October. But yesterday, the World Health Organization came out with a recommendation against the drug produced by Gilead Sciences. Doctors should stop prescribing it to hospitalize COVID-19 patients. With me now is the FT's Donato Paolo Mancini. He covers the coronavirus. Hey, Donato. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. So, Donato, why did the WHO come out with this recommendation? So, the WHO had a landmark study last month that looked at remdesivir and a bunch of other drugs. And what it found is that remdesivir does not have any effect on patients in hospital whatsoever. It doesn't affect their mortality. It doesn't affect the time they spend in hospital. And it doesn't affect their need for ventilation. The WHO, through an independent panel, is now basically acting upon that piece of evidence and saying remdesivir should not be used in patients who are in hospital. And so we have to see what's going to happen with this drug now. So what's next for remdesivir? Is it no longer an option when it comes to the fight against coronavirus? It is an option in many places in the world that actually got full approval from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration last month, which means it can be used in several settings in the the United States. And it also has conditional approval in, in Europe and has approval in many other places across the world. What we have to see now is whether this recommendation actually changes the way doctors use remdesivir with their patients. So the jury's still out as far as I'm concerned, but I think it is worth noting that the WHO, which is neutral in its own constitution, is saying that the drug doesn't work. We should note that Gilead responded to the WHO recommendation, making a lot of the points you just made, Donato, that remdesivir is recommended by the U.S. National Institutes of Health and the Infectious Diseases Society of America, and Gilead said it was disappointed with the WHO guidelines. Donato Palomancini covers coronavirus for the FT. Thank you, Donato. Thank you so much, Mark. billion. That's how much the Federal Reserve has left over from five emergency programs the U.S. Central Bank created at the beginning of the pandemic. And the U.S. Treasury wants that money back. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin wrote to Fed Chairman Jay Powell on Thursday. He said the Treasury would not extend several emergency lending facilities set up by the Fed. These include two schemes that buy corporate debt, one program that lends to state and local governments, and another that supports asset-backed securities. They all expire in late December. Mr. Mnuchin said the unused money, again $455 billion, could be spent on other things by Congress. The Fed released a statement yesterday in response. It said it would prefer that the full suite of emergency facilities continue to serve as a backstop for the vulnerable economy. Mnuchin did ask Powell to extend four emergency credit facilities that backstop short-term funding markets for 90 days. These include commercial paper and money market mutual funds.
Naked Wines is an online wine subscription business, and it's been doing well during the pandemic. It's benefited from fewer people eating out in restaurants and the overall growth in online trading. But it's been concerned about climate change recently, mostly because smoke from wildfires in the U.S. and Australia has caused widespread contamination of grape crops, and it's forcing the company to diversify its supply chain. FT Consumer Industries reporter Patricia Nilsson uncorks the story. The company's chief finance officer, James Crawford, told me that while fires have always been a bit of a problem in the regions where a lot of wine is grown, the intensity of these fires have increased in recent years. What's really interesting is that Naked Wine said it has had to ramp up testing of smoke taint, which is when chemicals from nearby fires impact the flavour. Crawford said it's still possible to source wine from other locations and said there's no risk of the flow of wine drying up anytime soon. But he called the issue a challenge for the industry. Scientists are warning that extreme weather and wildfires, which can all threaten wine crops, are becoming more intense and frequent as global temperatures rise. Even without natural disasters, hotter climates can change the speed at which grapes mature, altering their taste. Then you have the fires that not only put crops at the risk of being turned to charcoal, but their smoke can also alter the taste of grapes that are not even that close by. A colleague of mine in Australia, Jamie Smith, in March wrote about dozens of wine producers that were leaving grapes to rot after the bushfires there. So in that sense, wine producers are finding themselves at the front line of climate change. Venezuela's once wealthy economy has been devastated by political turmoil, corruption, and the falling price of oil, which is its main export earner. In addition to the fall in demand for crude, Venezuela's oil industry has suffered from a lack of investment and maintenance. So what are the prospects for a revival of Venezuela's economy if a new and more business-friendly government can step in? Michael Stott, our Latin America editor, has been looking into this, and he's on the line with me now. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Thank you. Michael, first of all, can you just draw a picture of how bad things have become under the leadership of Nicolas Maduro? Well, it's hard to exaggerate just how bad things have become. More than 5 million people have fled the country. That's about one in six of the population. The GDP has collapsed by three quarters in the last five years alone. A lot of the population have no access to running water or electricity for large parts of the day. And there are tremendous food and fuel shortages. So it's a very grim picture indeed. And this, of course, is in what was one of the world's wealthiest emerging markets. You know, Venezuela has the world's biggest proven oil reserves, according to OPEC data. So surely this must offer hope for an eventual recovery, right? Well, you would think so. But there's a couple of flies in the ointment. One is the current government. So the Maduro government nationalized the oil industry, expropriated foreign companies, got rid of foreign expertise took over the national oil company and then essentially ran it into the ground. So the infrastructure is in a terrible state. An awful lot of the equipment has been stolen or has rotted beyond repair. And at the same time, of course, there are very strict US sanctions on Venezuela, which prevent it from exporting its crude uh, legally at this point to anybody. Mm. I want to talk a little bit about opposition leader Juan Guaido. Um, He's basing his plans for economic revival on a growth in crude exports. Do you think This is a mistake? Well, one of the very few things Mr. Guaido and Mr. Maduro both agree on is that 
oil is the basis on which you should revive Venezuela's economy. The problem with this is that Venezuela's oil is one of the heaviest blends of crude oil in the world. So in a world where there is more and more focus on decarbonization and on reducing carbon footprints, Venezuela's oil sort of rather stands out like a sore thumb. And this is making it very difficult for foreign oil companies to contemplate. And I think the European ones who've been in the vanguard of concern about climate change are very unlikely now to make big new investments in Venezuela. Are politicians beginning to recognize that switch to green energy? And, you know, on top of that, we are in the middle of a pandemic that has reduced our need for oil dramatically. Is there any awareness of this in Venezuela? Not nearly enough, I would say, neither among the government nor among the opposition. And it's it's part of a broader problem in Latin America, where the continent has traditionally been very dependent on exports of commodities and oil and raw materials. And there's been a great reluctance to really engage with thinking about a new economic model that's based on more sustainable development, on renewable energy, and on the industries of the future, the tech industries, which Southeast Asia is developing so successfully. And I think a lot of the Venezuelan politicians and economists, both in Venezuela and in the diaspora, have been very reluctant historically to engage with a different development model. But I think they're going to have to do that because the prospects for getting that oil out of the ground are shrinking by the year. What, if anything, is the backup plan? Can you give us an idea of what Venezuela's second biggest export is just to gauge how important oil is for the country? Yes. So they do have other exports. The Maduro regime, of course, has been forced to diversify its sources of revenue by the US sanctions. But unfortunately, those sources of export revenue are illegal. One of them is illicit drugs. And Venezuela has been a transshipment point for large amounts of cocaine from South America through to the United States, according to American officials. And the other big illegal export that Maduro has been pursuing is gold. And there's been a tremendous amount of mercury contamination, deforestation, all of the environmental horrors and human rights horrors that you would associate with illegal mining. But it has provided the regime with a lifeline. So they do have other sources of export revenue, but unfortunately, they're not really ones you'd want to encourage. Michael Stott is our Latin America editor. Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much, Mark. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back next week for the latest business news. The FT News Briefing is produced by Fiona Simon and me, Mark Filipino. We had help from Gavin Kalman, Michael Bruning, and Amy Keene. Our theme song is by Metaphor Music. Selling a little? or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. 
Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.